Amen. All right, we're there in Joel chapter number three. And of course, on Sunday nights, we've been going through the book of Joel tonight. We're actually finishing up the book of Joel. And uh, with tonight's sermon, we'll spend six weeks in the book of Joel. And uh, just to quickly recap, we've done two weeks in each chapter. And if you've been with us, you may remember we started in chapter one. And I preached a sermon called How the Book of Joel Teaches a Post-Trib Rapture. And uh, then I did a practical sermon in the same chapter about how to keep the next generation from falling. We went to chapter 2, and I preached a sermon about the abomination of desolation and the post-trip rapture. And we talked about that army scheduled or described there at the beginning of chapter 2 and the desolation of Jerusalem. Then we talked about how the book of Joel proves replacement theology with the famous part there at the end of Joel 2 quoted in the book of Acts. And then... Last week, I preached a practical sermon, kind of going through some of the practical things that we skipped about rending your heart and about how God can restore the years that the locust has eaten and how God will recompense uh, evil upon the heads of those that do it. Tonight, we're going to finish the book of Joel, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. We're going to start there in uh, chapter uh, 9, and we'll go through verse 18. And I just want to bring to your attention and remind you that In the first few chapters of this book, what we had is the prophet Joel. When we're talking about prophetically, obviously there's a lot of just great practical, applicable preaching in the book. But when we talk prophetically, uh, he deals with the beginning of what we would refer to as Daniel's 70th week or that that the seven-year span of what we'd call the end times. And uh, he goes into detail about the four horsemen and the abomination of desolation, the desolation of Jerusalem, the day of the Lord, the rapture, all those things. And he touched on the battle of Armageddon and, and, uh, and, and the millennial reign. But tonight we're going to see uh, that the prophet Joel goes into much detail about these things. And he really ends the book by explaining to us how the end times ends and how it all finishes. We're going to start there in verse 9. But before we do that, I just want to point out to you in verse 2. In verse 2, he kind of begins to talk about this idea of the end times. He says this in Joel chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. So he talks about the fact that he's going to bring all the nations down into this valley. And he says, and I will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So he begins to talk about this gathering of the people in this valley of Jehoshaphat. And if you're taking notes tonight, and I would encourage you to take down some notes, I want you to notice that he begins kind of this latter part of the chapter, this last section of the book of Joel, by talking about the battle of Armageddon. And when he says that he's going to gather the nations together, that's what he's referring to. Look down at verse 9. He says, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. And he says, this is the proclamation that should go among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Mighty men in the Bible is a reference to soldiers or warriors. He said, I want you to proclaim to the Gentiles that they need to prepare for war. That they need to wake up the mighty men. He says, let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. He says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But he says, let the weak say... I am strong. And oftentimes, and you'll find this with a lot of charismatics and Pentecostals, 
Well, they'll take this Joel chapter 3 and verse 10, and they'll preach an entire sermon out of that little phrase at the end there of the verse where they'll say, God says, let the weak say, I am strong. And they'll say, God, you know, you can, you can, you, you can look at yourself and just tell yourself, I'm strong, and God's going to help you. And they'll preach this great prosperity gospel sermon out of that phrase. The only problem is that when you look at the context of that verse, he's talking to the bad guys. He's telling the bad guys, he says, hey, proclaim among the Gentiles, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. He says, let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. And he says, let the weak say, I am strong. And what he's saying is, go ahead and have a pep talk. You know how people, you often uh, hear about this in, 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 uh, in military campaigns before they go into some big battle. The general will stand up and give some pep talk and try to talk people into being enthusiastic about what they're about to do. Or even in, in sports, you'll have uh, the coach walk into the locker room at halftime and give some sort of a pep talk about how they need to go out there. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, go ahead and gather. All the Gentiles, gather all the nations, prepare for war, wake up the mighty men, bring the men of war, have a pep talk, let them, let the weak say I am strong, go ahead and encourage them. Notice verse 11, he says, assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about, hither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Then he says this in verse 12, he says, let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. So I want you to notice that we see here the prophet Joel is describing for us the gathering of all the Gentiles, the gathering of all the nations. They're coming down, they're, they're giving themselves a pep talk, they're uh, uh, getting enthusiastic, and we see them gathering the soldiers, bringing these people in. And this is a, a prophecy or a view of the Battle of Armageddon. Now, keep your pl uh, place here in Joel chapter 3, this is our text for tonight. But go with me if you went to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number 16. Last book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find, Revelation chapter 16. And do me a favor, when you get to the book of Revelation, put a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it throughout the sermon. But let me show you the battle of Armageddon from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 16, notice what it says in verse 14. It says, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles, and if you look at the previous verse, he mentions the false prophet, he mentions the beast, he mentions the dragon, he mentions the fact that they sent out these spirits into the world, and he says, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles, notice, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle of the great day of God Almighty. He says to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Look at verse 16, same chapter. He says, and I gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So he references the fact that he's going to gather. The Bible says that the dragon and the beast and the false prophet are going to send these spirits out and they're going to go into the whole world and they're going to convince the kings of the earth and all the nations to do what Joel is describing for us, to gather everybody together to fight against the Lord. Not only are they gathering the soldiers, but go keep your place there in Revelation. Go back to Joel uh, chapter 3. They're also gathering their weapons. I want you to notice what he says there in verse 10. Revela uh, Joel chapter 3 and verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. A plowshare is a tool used for gardening. It is a cutting blade used to plow 
the field, and he says, I want you to, to beat your plowshares into swords. He said, take, you know, he said, you don't have enough weapons. You don't have enough swords for the battle you're about to get into. He says, go ahead and grab all your swords, but why don't you grab all your plowshares while you're at it and turn them into swords and your pruning hooks. A pruning hook is a cutting hook used for pruning and to uh, uh, be able to bring fruit down. And he says, uh, turn your pruning hooks into spears. He says, I want you to gather these uh, nation, uh, the, 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 the armies together, the soldiers together, but I want you to gather weapons together. Now go with me real quickly to the book of Isaiah. Uh, you're there in Joel. If you go backwards, you go past the book of Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Joel, Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Isaiah. And let me just quickly make a point about the battle of Armageddon because we're going to See it here in a minute. If, when you listen to the pre-tribbers or the dispensationalists, if you watch their movies, they will portray the Battle of Armageddon as the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jews, I should say, being attacked by the world. The whole world is going to gather together against the Jews and then Jesus is going to show up on a white horse and save the Jews. That's how they uh, portray the battle of Armageddon. But this is not the case. The Bible teaches that when these nations gather themselves together, they are gathering themselves against the Lord. They are fighting against God. They are fighting against the Lord. And if you understand the end times prophecy, you know that the battle of Armageddon happens towards the end of what we refer to as the wrath of God. By the time you get to the battle of Armageddon, God has already been pouring out His wrath upon this earth. There's already been an assault by God, a supernatural assault upon the earth where He's punishing the earth. And this is the nations gathering themselves together and saying, we're going to go fight against God and see if they can beat God. But God says here that He's going to gather them all together. He says, let their soldiers be gathered. Let their weapons be gathered. He tells them to beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, let me just get off on a little bit of a rabbit trail for a minute and just highlight something for you. Because if you've been paying attention, and maybe you haven't, but if you've been paying attention to the wording here, that Joel chapter 3 and verse 10, it, it should have sparked something for you. Because it almost sounds like a very famous verse in the Bible. In fact, it's found in the book of Isaiah. It's found in another book as well. I'm going to show it to you here in Isaiah. But in Joel chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. This is very similar, except it's the exact opposite of a famous verse in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, look at verse 4. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. And in Isaiah 2 and verse 4, we have a very famous passage in the Bible in reference to the millennial reign. This is the millennial reign of Christ, where we're going to look at in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It's after the battle of Armageddon. Jesus already won the battle of Armageddon. He set up his kingdom upon this earth. It's during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4, And he shall judge among the nations. The he there is referring to the Lord. And he the Lord Jesus Christ, shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall, notice these words, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The Bible says that during the millennial reign of Christ, people are going to take their sword, which is a weapon, and they're going to beat it into a plowshare, which is a farming device. They're going to take their spears, which is a weapon, and they're going to turn them into pruning hooks, which is a, uh, a farming device. Why will they do this during 
during the millennial reign. They're going to take weapons and turn them into farming equipment. Here's why. Notice the last part of verse 4. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. See, when Jesus shows up, he brings peace. By the way, the Bible says that Jesus is the prince of peace. And when he comes on this earth and he's the king of this earth and he establishes his millennial reign, the Bible says that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Why? Because nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, here's something that's interesting. The United Nations, which is an antichrist society, by the way, the United Nations actually has Isaiah chapter 2 in verse 4 inscripted in, in marble, or excuse me, in granite, on a granite wall uh, uh, displayed at the United Nations. They have Isaiah chapter 2 in verse 4. But they left out a piece. When you go to the United Nations, and I wouldn't recommend you waste your time, and you look at this granite wall inscripted, it says, it's called the wall of Isaiah. And it has the reference, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It reads, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's what they quoted, the United Nations. Here's the part of the verse they left out. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. They left out the part of Jesus Christ. See, they like, the world likes this idea of peace. Oh, this sounds good. Let's beat our swords into plowshares and let's beat our spears into pruning hooks. They say that today. Let's get rid of all the weapons. Let's get rid of all the armor. Let's get rid of all the bombs. We can have peace and, and they push for peace. But listen, the UN, they're not hiding it. They believe that they can bring peace aside from Jesus Christ. They say Isaiah 2.4, that's good. Let's beat our swords into plowshares and our, uh, and our spears into pruning hooks. But they left out this part. He shall judge among the nations. I'm here to tell you, there will never be peace on this earth aside from Jesus Christ. Amen. When does the Bible say that they will turn their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks? When he, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. Until then... Until then, you know what God says? Joel 3 and verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You know what God, through the prophet Joel, tells the children of Israel, the, the, the nations there, to do? He says the exact opposite. He said, don't, don't, don't turn your swords into plowshares. Don't turn your spears into pruning hooks. That can't happen to the millennial reign when the Prince of Peace is reigning on this earth. Until then, he says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You're going to need it because there's no peace aside from Jesus Christ. Amen. He said, don't get rid of your weapons. You're going to need them. The United Nations thinks that they can bring peace, that they can bring peace outside of and aside from the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not true. There will come a day when they will beat their swords into plowshares, but it will not be until the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling upon this earth. Amen. Until then, Joel says, do the opposite. It's interesting to me because it's almost the exact same quote, just in reverse order. Turn your plowshares into swords. Turn your pruning hooks into spears. 
You say, why? God says, because we're going to fight. He says, I'm going to gather. He said, I'm going to gather the soldiers. I'm going to gather the armies. I'm going to gather the weapons into this valley, and I'm going to fight with you. You say, what is the purpose of the battle of Armageddon? Why is God gathering these armies in Armageddon? Go back to Joel chapter 3. He's gathering them in Armageddon for one reason. God will judge. Notice verse number 11 there, Joel chapter 3 and verse 11. He says, assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Hither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Notice he says, I'm going to gather you in the battle of Armageddon, and there I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge the nations. He says, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. And notice verse 13. And a lot of people, especially our dispensational friends, they get confused here. Because then he says this in verse 13. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for the wickedness is great. And here you have a description of a harvest. And sometimes people get confused and they say, well, is this the rapture? Because the rapture is often equated to a harvest or it's pictured by a harvest. The Bible talks about the fact that he's going to harvest the world of believers. And here in Joel chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, put ye in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for the wickedness is great. And sometimes people get confused, and they're like, they'll say, well, this is confusing because you got the Bible of again, then you got the rapture, you know, and this is why you can't understand these things. It's not in chronological order and all these things. But here's what you need to understand. The harvesting that Joel is mentioning here in Joel 3.13 is not the rapture. I'm going to prove that to you, not from a commentary, but from the Word of God. It's not the rapture. Because in the end times, there are actually two harvests or harvestings that are described in the same way. One for believers at the rapture, yes. And then another when it is a harvesting of the reprobate nation armies that God gathers together in the battle of Armageddon to destroy them. Let me prove it to you. Go to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter number 14, if you would. I'm not sure if you kept your place in, in the book of Revelation or not. Revelation chapter 14. Look at verse number 14. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14. The Bible says this, and I look. This is, of course, the book of Revelation. By the way, when you study the Bible, you should always allow the... New Testament to shed light upon the Old Testament. Not vice versa. This is where a lot of people get confused. They want, to, they want to go to Daniel and have Daniel explain to us what the book of Revelation teaches or have Joel explain to us what the book of Revelation teaches. The Bible calls those Old Testament books. Paul said about those Old Testament prophetic books, he, say, he said, we see through a glass darkly. The Bible tells about the book of Daniel that it's a closed book. It's a dark book. Daniel had to fast for 21 days just to try to understand the little bit he could. And there was all sorts of spiritual warfare as a result of his, uh, 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 of, of his fasting and his request and his understanding. The Bible tells us that the book of Revelation is the book that God gave us to reveal 
to reveal unto us the events of the end time. So always allow the New Testament to shed light upon the Old Testament. Always allow the, the, the book of Revelation to shed light upon other prophetic uh, books. So here in Joel chapter 3, we have this sickle and, and this harvest that is ripe and this press that is full and it overflows and their wickedness is great. So we know it's not the, uh, the rapture of believers because their wickedness is great is what it says. In Revelation 14 and verse 14, the Bible says this, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. Now again, people like to play games with these verses and, and make them seem, say things that, that, that aren't there. But you, you don't have to be a scholar to realize that Jesus on this earth called himself the Son of Man over and over and over and over again. Jesus called himself the Son of Man more times than he called himself. The Bible calls him the Son of Man more times than it calls him the Son of God. The Son of God is a reference to his deity. The Son of Man is a reference to his humanity. There's one other person that called himself the Son of Man as he pictured the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's Ezekiel the prophet. This is not talking about Ezekiel. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud, one sat like unto the Son of Man. So we have someone who has the same reference as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, coming upon a cloud. Now, I don't know how many credits you've got from Bible college, but you don't have to be that smart to figure this out. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible says he ascended up in a cloud. The angel said the same way in which he left is the way in which he will come. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. You say, well, that kind of sounds like what Joel said. He said that there was a, a, a sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in the sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. You say, well, that kind of sounds like Joel chapter 3. Notice verse 16. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. You say, what is going on here in Revelation 14? This is the rapture. This is the harvesting of believers. This is the Son of Man coming upon a cloud, thrusting his sickle into the harvest, and reaping the harvest of the earth, the believers, because the earth is ripe, and the earth was reaped. That's what we find here in Revelation 14, 14 through 16. You say, well, then what do we do with Joel chapter 3 and verse 13? Because that says, put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fat overflow, for the wickedness is great. You say, where does that fit? Well, keep reading, because there's two harvests. Notice verse 17, Revelation 14, 17. And, here's the key word, another. Not the same. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He, here's the key word, also, not the same, a different one, another one, who also says, he also having a sharp sickle. Joel 3.13, put ye in the sickle. This is the sickle that Joel's referring to. Revelation 14.17, after Jesus, the Son of Man, comes in the clouds, 
puts in the, uh, the, the sickle and he harvests the earth, the rapture happens. Then the Bible tells us there's another angel that came out. He also having a sharp sickle. Look at verse 18. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for the grapes are fully ripe. Isn't that what Joel said? Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Here in Revelation 14, in verse 17, we're told about another angel with another sickle, also having a sharp sickle, and he thrust in the sickle. He says that, verse 18, for her grapes are fully Right. Notice verse 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great wine press. What did Joel say? He said, put ye in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down for the press is full. Joel said, the press is full. Revelation says uh, that he cast them, last part of verse 19, into the great wine press. Notice, of the wrath of God. Notice verse 20. And the wine press was trodden without the city. What do you do in a wine press? What do you do in a press? See, Joel is describing, he's saying, God is going to take a sickle, and God is going to take a pruning hook. And yes, the Son of Man is going to come in a cloud, and he's going to harvest the believers out of the earth. That's called the rapture. But he says then there's going to come also another judgment, another harvesting, where God is going to gather all these reprobate, because remember at this point they've already taken the mark of the beast. It's a reprobate army of the Antichrist gathering all these militaries together. He's gathering them together into this valley. And he illustrates it as though he's bringing grapes into a press. What do you do with grapes in a press? You take your shoes off, you climb inside, and you crush them. What is God going to do? Look at Revelation 14, verse 20. And the winepress was trodden without the city. And blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. You say, what is going on here? Here's what's going on. After the rapture, after the Son of Man comes in the clouds and gathers all his believers... After the rapture, you have the wrath of God, which ends with the battle of Armageddon, where God again throws in a sickle and gathers all these people together into this, into this valley. He calls it the press of the wrath of God. You say, then what happens? Then we have the end of what's referred to as the second coming of Christ. Let me just share this with you real quickly, and then I'm going to explain some of these things. Go to Revelation 19. And I want you to notice what happened here. The people in this valley get crushed. And the Bible says that the blood came out of the winepress, and so much blood comes out of the winepress, it's like a flood even unto the horse's bridle. 
Referring to the fact that you have a horse, a beast with a bridle on its mouth and goes to their neck and the blood goes up to that point. Why? Because all these people are in this valley and God shows up. Jesus shows up. And like grapes, he trods on them. He crushes them. You say, is that figurative? Um, I, don't think, uh, I don't think when it says that the blood came out of the wine press even unto the horse bridle by the space of 1,600 furlongs. When he gives you specific measurements like that, I don't think that's figurative. I don't think that's a parable. I think he's telling you what's going to happen. See, at the second coming of Christ, and I'll explain that term here in a minute because we're, we're going to have to deal with it in Joel. That culminates with the battle of Armageddon and Jesus bringing judgment upon this earth and upon the armies of the Antichrist. Revelation 19, let me show it to you. Look at verse 11. Revelation 19 and verse 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head, on his head were many crowns. And he had the name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Now we read this in Revelation and we, make, we romanticize this, right? He, he's, he has, he's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. The problem is that when you study this, and I'm not going to do it tonight, but when you cross-reference this to other references to this same event, that's not his blood. He comes and he crushes them and the blood gushes out and his vesture is dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which were in heaven, that's you and I by the way, followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now his mouth goeth a sharp sword. We talked about this in Joel chapter 2. I hate to break it to you, but you're not going to be fighting at the battle of Armageddon. We're going to come with him. The Bible says in verse 14, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. But you're not going to be doing any fighting. You're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. You say, what's going to be our role at the battle of Armageddon? Cheerleading. We're going to be cheering for the Lord Jesus Christ as he fights, verse 15, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he shall smite the nations. Remember, they gathered the nations together. They gathered the heathen together. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he, notice, and he treadeth. You understand the word tread? To step upon, to pounce, to, 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 to uh, uh, stomp. He says, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Same thing we read in Revelation 14. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Go back to Joel chapter 3. You say, why did you show us that in Revelation 19 that it is Jesus that comes? It is Jesus that presses the winepress of the wrath of God. It is Jesus. There's two harvests and one harvest is of believers. The other is of these armies, these nations of the Antichrist that get trodden upon by Jesus Christ. In Joel 3 and verse 14, the Bible says this, multitudes, multitudes, 
in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Then in verse 15, we have this reference to the day of the Lord. If you remember when we started the book of Joel, I told you that the book of Joel has a theme through it, and the theme is the day of the Lord. And whenever you see this terminology, it's always a reference to the day of the Lord. Joel 3.15, And the sun and moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Now here's what, here's what the pre-tribbers and what the dispensationalists want you to think. They want you to think, and their major argument against us, those of us that say, no, look, it's clear. He, he gives you a chronological order. The book of Revelation is in chronological order. There's two sides to it. There's two portions where he goes through the same events twice. But they're all, if you match them up, they're all chronological order. And they want to tell us, no, no, you're wrong. You can't understand the book of Revelation. You need this fancy, uh, you know, chart, and that's the only way you're going to be able to understand it. That's why you see people, uh, uh, like, that's like a guy's name, his name's escaping right now, the guy in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Big guy, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you watch him on TV. Hagee. John Hagee gets up there to preach. Every time he's preaching, he's got this big old complicated, you ever, ever seen that? These huge, complicated, you know, uh, 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 outlines of the end times. you got to read all these commentaries. They want you to think it's all complicated. And they'll use books like the book of Joel because they'll see, look, you got the battle of Armageddon, but then you got the harvest here. That's confusing. That's not in chronological order, except that if you read the book of Revelation, you find out that no, there's actually a second harvest that fits perfectly with what Joel's talking about. The grapes of the wrath of God. The wine press of the wrath of God. The wine press of the Almighty God. There's no problem there. Joel knows what he's talking about. Then they'll say, okay, well, what about Joel 3.15? The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. That's the day of the Lord. They'll say, according to you, and they're speaking to us, and they're correct. The day of the Lord happens in the midst of the week. That's when the rapture happens, according to you. Now we're here at the end of the battle of Armageddon, and he's bringing up the day of the Lord again. What's that about? And here's what I want you to understand. The reason that Joel brings up again the day of the Lord, a couple of reasons. First of all, it's the theme of the book. He brings it up five times in these three chapters, and not all in chronological order. And this is not necessarily in chronological order, but I do believe there's a reason why he brought it up, and it is to make this point. Because this is another thing that people do not understand. When is the second coming of the Lord? Because you talk to the pre-tribbers. Go to 1 Thessalonians if you want. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Find the T-books. They're all clustered together. 1 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Titus. When you talk to the pre-tribbers and the dispensationalists, this is what they'll say. They'll say, the rapture is not the second coming of the Lord. There's a secret rapture, and we're like, what about the trumpet? They're like, there's a trumpet, but nobody hears it. We're like dogs, you know, it's at a certain pitch, and only certain people hear it, apparently. We all disappear, nobody knows what happened, they think it's aliens. And, but then Jesus comes at the battle of Armageddon, that's the second coming of the Lord, is what they say. The problem with that, that's, that's not what the Bible says. However... The Bible does call Jesus coming at the battle of Armageddon the day of the Lord as well. Uh, excuse me, the, the, the second coming of Christ. You say, well, Pastor Jimenez, you're, you're confusing us here. Are you pre-trib or post-trib? I'm post-trib, but I'm here to tell you the reason 
that Joel brings up the day of the Lord at the rapture and then fast forwards to the battle of Armageddon and then brings up the day of the Lord again. It's not that the day of the Lord is going to happen twice. He's making this connection that this entire time frame is referred to as the second coming of Christ. You say, prove it. Okay. First Thessalonians 4, look at verse 15. Notice what the Bible says. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain... Now listen to me. Nobody argues that this is about the rapture. I mean, if there is one passage of Scripture that everybody agrees, 1 Thessalonians 4.15 is about the rapture, this is it. Notice what the Bible calls it. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord... What does the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, call the rapture, calls it the coming of the Lord? Shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is the rapture, my friend, and the Bible calls it. I don't care what your Bible college says. I don't care what your commentary says. I don't care what your Schofield notes say. The Bible calls it unto the coming of the Lord. So according to the Bible, what's the coming of the Lord? It's the rapture. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me show you another passage. Look at verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, notice, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. What is our gathering together unto him? The rapture. What is that referred to as? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what you need to understand. The coming of the Lord starts with Christ when he comes for his saints. Think about what we saw in Revelation 14. What did we see? Two harvests. What did one represent? The first one was the Son of Man coming on the clouds, doing what? Reaping the earth. What was he doing? He was coming for his saints. That's the coming of the Lord. But then the Bible also says this. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable and holiness before God, even our Father. Notice his words. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for his saints? No, with all his saints. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Is the, is, the, is the coming of the Lord when he comes for his saints? Or is it when he comes with his saints? Well, according to the Bible, it's both. Wait, wait. Is the harvesting when he harvests the people, the believers, and he's coming for his saints? Or is it when he treads the winepress of the Almighty God with his saints? Well, it's actually both. And it shouldn't be that hard to grasp. If you think about the first advent of Christ, people say, well, it has to be one of those. those. Those events are separated by three and a half years. Okay, well, here's the thing. When did Jesus, when was Jesus born on this earth? It was at his first coming, at his first advent. When did Jesus die on the cross? At his first coming, in his first advent. When did Jesus ascend up to heaven? At his first coming, in his first ab- uh, 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 time on this earth. Those things are separated by 30 33 years. 
From the birth of Christ to the ascension of Christ, all of that is referred to as the first coming of Christ. And from the day of the Lord and the rapture and the harvest of believers, when the Son of Man comes on the clouds, reaps the earth for believers, coming for his saints, that's called the second coming, and all of that culminates three and a half years later at the Battle of Armageddon when he comes to the winepress of the Almighty God with his saints. Remember we saw in Revelation 19, we're coming with him. All that's called the second coming of Christ. So when Joel brings up the day of the Lord, he brings it up because the day of the Lord is a symbol or a representation of the second advent of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And it's all connected. That's why Revelation 14, one right after the other, describes two harvests, uses similar terminology, talks about the fact that there's sickles and there's ripening of the harvest, and they're gonna, but there's two different things, two different events. One is coming for his saints. The other is coming with his saints. Go back to Joel chapter 3. So what have we seen? We saw the battle of Armageddon, the gathering in Armageddon, and God will judge the earth. Then we see the second coming of Christ, the second coming or the second advent of Christ. He comes, and just like his birth, his life, his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension 40 days later, all are considered the first advent or the first coming of Christ. The rapture, the trumpets, the vials, and all of that culminating with the battle of Armageddon, all of that is considered the second coming or the second advent of Christ. Because he starts his coming with the rapture, he ends his coming with Armageddon, and then he sets up his millennial kingdom, which is exactly what Joel brings up next. Joel chapter 3. Actually, you know what? Let me show this to you real quick. Look at verse, Joel chapter 3, look at verse 16. Let me show this before I get off the topic of the second coming. I want to show you how when Jesus comes back, how he comes back. Joel 3, look at verse 16. And the Lord also shall, notice this word, roar. Now usually when you think of an animal that roars, what do you think of? A lion, right? I mean, I think every, if you ask a random person, what's an animal that roars? First thing they're going to say, a lion. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Go to Jeremiah just real quickly. Jeremiah chapter 25. If you go backwards again, you have Joel, Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah. Joel, Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah. This is a consistent description of the second coming of Christ. He says when he comes, when the Lord comes, he comes with a roar. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. Jeremiah 25. Let me just show it to you in another passage. Jeremiah 25, verse 30. The Bible says this, Therefore prophesy thou against, against them all these words, and say unto them, The Lord, notice these words, shall roar. I just think you have to read it that way. The Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as, don't miss this, they that tread the grapes. Does that sound familiar? The winepress of God against all the inhabitants of the earth. If you remember 
from 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. You say, what, what, what's all this roaring about? Well, here's what you need to understand. Remember, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. In comparison and contrast to the first coming of Christ, see, the first time Jesus came, you know what they said? You know what John said when he saw Christ coming down? He said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. The first time he came as a lamb, the Bible tells us the second time he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The first time he came as a sacrificial lamb, the second time he comes as a lion with a shout, with a roar, bringing the judgment of God. Look at Joel 3 and verses 17, then we have the millennial reign. Notice what he says. Joel 3, 17, So shall ye know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion. This is the millennial reign. When God, the Lord, Jesus Christ, dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, then shall, Jerusalem, uh, uh, then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. Notice verse 18. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop. See, when the millennial reign of Christ happens, there's going to be a miraculous renewing of the earth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with water. He said there's going to be a miraculous, there's going to be a miraculous uh, renewing of the earth. How does this happen? You say, how do you know this is about the millennial reign? Look at verse 18. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with water. Notice, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shittim. So here, we're told that this fountain flows from the house of the Lord during the millennial reign. You say, is this figurative? Well, again, it's brought up over and over throughout the Bible. Let me give you an example. Go to Ezekiel chapter 47. Jesus shows up on this earth, establishes his reign upon this earth, establishes his kingdom from Jerusalem during the millennial reign. His house is established, and the Bible says that a fountain flows from the house. And as a result, the earth is miraculously renewed. Notice how Ezekiel... Notice how Ezekiel points it out. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house. This is the house of the Lord. And behold, notice how Ezekiel says it. Waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east. And the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. Notice verse 6. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and, ca uh, and caused me to return to the brink of the water. Now when I had returned, he's talking about this water that's gushing out from the house of the Lord. He says in verse 7, Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. 
Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country, and go down into the desert, and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. Notice verse 9. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river cometh, shall live. And there shall be very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come hither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live, whether the river cometh. Think about the Middle East right now in Jerusalem. It's a dry place. It's a desert. But the Bible says that God will establish His kingdom there, and out of His house will gush out these rivers. And as the river gushes out, everything that touches, He says, everything shall be healed, and everything shall live, whether the river cometh. Look at verse 12, same chapter. And by the river upon the banks, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaves shall not fade. Neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his mouth, because the waters they issued out of the sanctuary. And the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and, for the, and the leaf thereof for medicine. During the millennial reign of Christ, the Bible says that this river, this fountain, is going to gush out of the house of the Lord. And, it's going, and it, as it travels, the waters will heal the earth. And the earth will have a miraculous renewing. And God is going to bring this earth back to a state of renewal. To a state of paradise. And the Bible tells us, and I'm not going to take the time to, to go through all the details. You, you go back to Joel chapter 3 if you would. The Bible tells us that men will live hundreds of years. They'll live as long as trees live. Why? Because there's going to be these fruits, these trees with fruit for meat and the leaf thereof for medicine. There, you, you know, I'm all for eating organic, but you'll never eat organic like this organic. People will live long, be healthy and strong during the millennial reign. So what do we see here at the end? What do we see here at the end of the book of Joel? Here's what we see. We see the gathering of the soldiers, the armies. They're gathered into the valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, let me just, let me just say this real quickly. If you notice here in, in, in the last part of the book of Joel, there's all these references to valleys. In verse 12, we have the valley of Jehoshaphat. If you notice there, let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. In uh, verse 2, we also had the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, there is no other reference as far as I can tell. And, you know, I looked at it and, and, I, and I, I didn't see any of the reference. You know, I could be wrong about that. But there, there's no other reference to the valley of Jehoshaphat. But I think it's clear from the context that it is the valley of Megiddo or Armageddon. But there's these other valleys that are mentioned in, in Joel 3, verse 14. Talk about multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And again, the assumption could be made there that that is Armageddon or the valley of Megiddo. But after the fountains come forth, Joel 3, 18, look at the last part of verse 18. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Here we have another valley mentioned, the Valley of Shittim. Now, as far as I can tell, there's no other reference to the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Shittim throughout the entire Bible. 
I think based off the context, an educated guest would say that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is definitely the Valley of Megiddo, because that's where he gathers the nations to trample them, that you can have those cross-references. The Valley of Shittim may also be a reference to that. I'm not being dogmatic about this. All I'm saying is this. There's another valley named here that we don't really know what it is. And what's interesting is we know that this is about the second coming of Christ in reference to the Battle of Armageddon. We're told in other passages that when Jesus returns, when the sole of his foot lands upon this earth, it'll land on the Mount Olivet. And when his foot lands on that mountain, it'll split in half. And it may be that this valley of Shittim is the valley that's being referenced here, a new valley that Jesus brings forth with the power of his foot. Just a thought. And again, I'm not dogmatic about that. But we have this gathering in Armageddon, the judgment of God, the second coming of Christ, which begins with the day of the Lord, the rapture, and ends with the battle of Armageddon. And then we have this millennial reign. So let me just real quickly give you three takeaways in regards to this passage, and we'll finish the book of Joel. Number one, God will judge this world. The Bible is clear. See, sometimes you can get discouraged and say, yeah, well, people sin, and people do this, and people do that, and and they get away with it. Let me tell you something. Nobody gets away with anything. They may get away with it for a while, and they may even get away with it on this earth, but God will judge. God is the great equalizer. And here, just the battle of Armageddon shows us the judgment of the coming God. So one takeaway is this. God will judge this world. So don't worry about it. Let the wicked get rich and let them be happy and prosper upon this earth, because God will judge them. Another takeaway is this, we've already talked about it, but it is this, there is no peace aside from Jesus Christ. I don't care how many peace treaties they sign, I don't care how many peace accords they they have, I don't care how many meetings the United Nations has, they they can put whatever verses they want on their walls and remove the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no peace without Christ. The only time that there will be peace in the Middle East or in the world will be when the Prince of Peace is reigning upon the earth. But let me just say this. That's not only true about this world. That's true about your life. Your life without Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about being saved or unsaved. I'm just saying when you are walking, like we talked about this morning, when you are not surrendering yourself and saying to Jesus, lead us, your life will get chaotic. It'll get hard to handle. It'll get miserable. But you can have peace when you walk with the Prince of Peace. So we see that God will judge. We see that God brings peace. Now I just want to say this thirdly. God will allow us to enjoy this earth during the millennial reign. Now here's the truth. And I believe this applies to many of you. I don't know if it applies to all of you. I know this. It applies to a lot of people in ministry, full-time ministry. And it is this, that sometimes, and please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, because I am not complaining. It is a privilege of my life. It is a privilege of my life and the privilege of my wife's life to serve the Lord in full-time ministry. But sometimes when you dedicate your life to full-time ministry, you miss out on a lot of things that other people do. You know, many of you, when you got married, you went on honeymoons and you went to Hawaii. 
my wife and I didn't go to Hawaii until we'd been married for like 15 years. And the only reason I went to Hawaii is because they had me preach there, so I still had to work while I was there. <laughs> Oftentimes, people give themselves to ministry and they miss out. Because when my wife and I got married, we were 18 years old, and I'm not advocating people get married at 18 years old. In fact, I don't advocate that. I'm just telling you what we did. It doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. It's just what we did. It worked out for us, but it doesn't work out for a lot of people. Just know that. We got married at 18 years old, and you know what we did? You know how we spent our lives? You know what we spent our lives doing? 18, 19, 20 years old at Regency Baptist Church. You know what our Sunday looked like? Here's what our Sunday looked like. At 6 in the morning, we got up and turned the bus on, let it warm up for 30 minutes while the bus driver got there. Then we drove 30 minutes out and picked up 70 ghetto children because we were in a bus ministry. That's just what they did in that church. That's what we did. We were given a bus and told, fill it. So we took it to North Highlands and got a bunch of kids saved and got a bunch of parents saved. And we'd bring 60, 70 kids to church every week on a bus. We'd bring them to church. I'd pre- my wife and I would sing on the bus with the kids. I'd preach to them on the way there on the bus because we had a 30-minute drive. We'd go to church, Sunday school, Sunday morning. After Sunday morning, we'd get back on that bus, spend another hour going there, singing songs, preaching to them on the way there, dropping them all off. We'd be done around 3 p.m. on Sunday. Go get lunch. My wife and I, this was before we had kids. And then we'd be at choir practice at 5 p.m. That's how we spent our Sundays. That's why I don't feel that bad for some of you. <laughs> you say, what'd you do on Saturday? We spent three hours out soul winning. We spent one hour soul winning, one hour following up on our bus kits, another hour looking for new bus kits, because if I, we're going to run a bus, I want to run the biggest bus in the church. We didn't go on a lot of trips. We didn't do a lot of traveling. We were faithful. On Wednesday nights, I taught the kids' class. My wife helped me. I preached to the kids. I said, what did you preach to the kids about? Repentance, about sin. I preached to them like I preached to adults. My wife taught in the school. This is before we understood homeschooling, and she taught in the Christian school. I'm just telling you we serve the Lord with our lives. And you say, what about all the traveling? What about all the fun? What about all this? this? What about all that? We just served God. We went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, soul winning Saturday. I led a soul winning program at our church, and I wasn't paid. Nobody paid me. I led the soul winning program at our church, Regency Baptist Church. You got all these maps we give you and all these things. You know where that all originated? With me and my wife at Regency Baptist Church. The pastor there said, uh, I want you to organize a soul winning program because I was completely disorganized. I was 19 years old, 20 years old, and we started mapping out maps and printing out maps and putting directions and, and training people and developing soul winning and doing these things. You see, you say, oh, you, you do all that because you're a pastor. Well, here's the thing. I was doing it, and my wife were doing it long before we were a pastor and pastor's wife. Amen. Organizing soul winning, organizing soul winners, teaching people how to go soul winning, how to Tuesday night class where we taught people how to preach the gospel, present the gospel, follow up on their converts, taught people how to uh, work on their bus route and do all those things. And here's what I'm telling you. We gave our lives to the ministry even before we were ever in ministry. So you know what I believe God's going to do for us one day? He's going to say, go ahead and take your wife to the Bahamas. Now, you're not married anymore during the millennial reign. Go ahead and take her on that cruise. Go ahead and take her on that trip. Go ahead and enjoy the earth. 
Now, you can enjoy the earth now. You can enjoy your vacation now. You can enjoy your time off now. You can decide, I'm going to enjoy this life and forget God now. I'd rather serve God with my life and enjoy it when God heals this earth. Amen. In the millennial reign. So you choose. Because here's what I know. This earth stinks. And while people are dying and going to hell, I'm not against you taking vacations. Please don't misunderstand me. I, I, you say, you didn't go near any traveling. People ask me to travel every week of my life around here, you know, preach here and preach there. I have to tell people no all the time. And honestly, I'm so sick and tired of traveling. I hope they lock us down again. <laughs> Just to have an excuse to tell people, I can't, I can't go preach for you. Here's what I'm telling you. This earth, people on this earth, they're dying and going to hell. And you can focus your life and give your life to reach people on this earth now. And God says there's a rain coming, the millennial rain coming. And you can enjoy the earth and you can enjoy your fun and you can enjoy your money and you can enjoy all that then. Or you can do it now. But I'll tell you this now, won't be anything in comparison to that. So he ends with this millennial reign. When those who have served God faithfully and maybe missed out on some of the things they could have done on this earth, we'll get to enjoy the earth in that day. Joel chapter 3, look at verse 20. We'll finish up right here. Joel chapter 3, verse 20. But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. And we know, of course, this is the new covenant, and this is God's people. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. And Joel tells us that this is how the end times ends. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. And Lord, I know that sometimes it could be difficult. People might think, I got to give up my Saturdays to go soul winning. I could enjoy those days off. Lord, help us to realize that there's so much more to do for you. And there is coming a time when you will allow us to enjoy this earth. I believe that's what the millennial reign is all about. Giving us rewards and letting us enjoy this earth. Help us, Lord, to understand to get a proper perspective of the world. There's much to do. People need to hear the gospel. Need to need be, they need to be saved. They need to be discipled. Why? Because the judgment of God is coming. But you'll allow us to enjoy this earth one day. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.